welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today are the memories of a time when it was still safe for people to sit indoors around a table together. Uh, this episode is being recorded in August of 2020, so spending time with memories is actually one of the safer ways to socialize. One of the least consequential effects of the situation we find ourselves in is that it has prevented me from traveling to West Virginia. After we recorded our episode on the Kecksburg UFO crash, I decided I wanted to drive down to Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, to do a little road trip, maybe do a little first-hand research. Then, after we recorded our Mothman episode, I developed a serious itch to also drive down to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which is only a few hours' drive away. Obviously, that kind of travel is pretty much shut down for the foreseeable future, so I thought instead of visiting the area in person, I would revisit the area with my brain by researching another of the strange UFO events that took place there. So this week, we're going back to West Virginia, and we're going back to the 1950s, because in this episode, we are going to look at what happened on the night of September 12, 1952, in a forest outside of the small town of Flatwoods. Because what happened that night, according to seven eyewitnesses, is that a UFO crashed into the forest, and the occupant of that UFO was a tall, terrifying creature with glowing red eyes and spindly claws. However, before we get to that event, we have to, as always, set the stage. And for you guys, I would assume that this is getting to be a pretty familiar stage since we have done so many episodes about this era in time. The year is 1952, and the Cold War is in full terror mode, as by this point both the Americans and the Soviets had developed their own atomic bombs, with which each could level the cities of the other. American citizens not only had their worried eyes trained to the skies out of fear of Soviet bombers, but had to keep their peripheral vision on their neighbors, since in 1952 were in the midst of both the Red and Lavender scares. Brand new advanced technologies that would have been difficult for the public to imagine only a decade earlier, uh, such as the jet fighter plane, were now commonplace. And on the alien and flying saucer front, in 1952, we were only five years removed from Kenneth Arnold seeing UFOs out of the window of his plane over Mount Rainier, and four years removed from Captain Mantell crashing and dying in his plane after being sent after a large silver object that had floated over Kentucky. Even though we're still at the beginning of the 1950s, we've already had a few years of the movie theaters being filled with stories of humans going to outer space or beings from outer space coming to Earth, including... Flying Discman from Mars, Rocketship XM, The Flying Saucer, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Flight to Mars, The Man from Planet X, The Thing from Another World, Red Planet Mars, and the serial Red Earth Men from the Moon. Sometimes the aliens in those films were wise and helpful and wanted to try to save humanity from its own destructive impulses. And sometimes the aliens in those films had destructive impulses of their own and had the death rays to carry out those impulses. And one of the people who would have been responsible for getting those films into theaters in West Virginia was a man who has come up before in these podcasts, Gray Barker. You might remember that name from the Mothman episode, Gray Barker was one of the journalists who showed up in Point Pleasant in 1966 to investigate the Mothman sightings. You might also remember him from the Philadelphia Experiment episode as the publisher who wrote about the death of Maurice Jessup. But in 1952, Barker wasn't a journalist or a publisher yet. 
He was a movie theater booker. Basically, that's someone who promotes movies to theaters and whose reputation is made on whether or not they are successful in predicting what the general movie-going public is going to want to see and therefore buy tickets for. In order to do this job well, Barker would have needed an appreciation for the power of a good story and an understanding of the zeitgeist, which is a German word that Lee would undoubtedly pronounce better than I just did. Loosely translated, it means spirit of the time, and it refers to a general reflection on what a culture is thinking and caring about at any given moment. As a person who was picking the movies that would go out to theaters, Barker would have had an interesting relationship to the zeitgeist. He would need to know what kinds of concepts and stories his culture had an appetite for. But by picking movies to be shown in small towns, he was also influencing the zeitgeist to a degree, since so much of what we think of the world is shaped by the images and the narratives that we see in movies. This was particularly true back in the 1950s, where there was so much fewer entertainment options available. The UFO movies that Gray Barker was booking in the theaters of West Virginia and Pennsylvania were incepting ideas into those populations. In particular, the idea that the night sky was filled with spaceships and aliens, and the success of those films was showing Barker that there was a market for those sorts of stories. This all likely contributed to the fact that when Barker heard that there had been an alien encounter in the nearby town of Flatwoods, he saw an opportunity to branch off into a new line of work, UFO researcher and reporter. So let's back up a little bit and go over the story that caught Barker's attention and inspired him to change his career trajectory. During the evening of September 12, 1952, something blazed across the sky of three states, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and West Virginia. This is not up for debate. There are plenty of independent eyewitnesses to this event. Amongst those eyewitnesses were Eddie May, 13 years old at the time, his brother Fred May, one year younger, and their friend Tommy Heyer, who was 10. The three of them were out playing when they saw what looked like a fireball land in the forest on the property of local farmer G. Bailey Fisher. The boys ran to the house of the mother of the two brothers, Mrs. Kathleen May. She contacted a neighbor named Jean Lemon, who was 17, and who was in the National Guard. And after a few minutes of frantic organizing, Eddie, Fred, Tommy, Mrs. May, Jean, Jean's dog, and two other local boys named Neil Nunley, 14, and Ronnie Shaver, 10, hiked up the hill where the two boys thought the object had crashed. As they climbed the wooded hill, they became aware of a pulsing red light some distance ahead of them. There was an odd fog shrouding the ground and the trees, and the pulsing red light rhythmically refracted off of that fog, causing an eerie effect. There was an odd and unpleasant smell in the air, something metallic and unsettling. Gene was leading the group, and out of the corner of his eye, he thought he saw something reflecting about 15 feet ahead of them and about 10 feet off the ground. When he aimed his flashlight beam at the reflection, the light revealed something horrifying. There was a human-like figure with a round face, cowled in what looked like a pointed hood. The body wasn't clearly defined, and Mrs. May would later state that she thought that the body was shrouded in a cloak or a drape-like skirt. It had two bony clawed hands that it held in front of its body. And when it was illuminated by Jean's flashlight, it gave off a hissing noise and started to glide towards the group. At this point, Jean screamed and dropped the flashlight, and everyone, including the dog, ran back down the hill. At this point, I'd like to take a little more time to describe the monster as it is generally portrayed. 
One of the great disadvantages of the podcast as a medium is that since there are no visuals, we have to paint a picture with our words. And since, as the cliche goes, a picture is worth a thousand words, it's going to take me about a thousand words to capture what would normally take you a few seconds to look at. Although, probably by the time you're listening to this, we will have put up a Flatwoods monster picture up on our Instagram account, which can be found on Instagram at The Uncoverup. That is part of our series of 100% faked reproductions that we do by taking photos of weird plastic figurines that we order from the internet. But in the meantime, I'll try to paint you a mental picture. For the general outline of the creature, start with a humanoid shape. Begin by drawing in your imagination a sphere. That's the head of the monster, slightly larger than a human head would be on a similar sized human body, and much rounder. On that round head, there are two very large eyes that take up most of the middle third of the face. There is no nose, ears, or mouth to speak of, or with, I guess, in the case of the mouth. Then place that round head on top of a broad-shouldered torso that narrows down to the waist. Stick on a couple of Tyrannosaurus arms, but attach them to the side at the shoulders, not out front like on a Tyrannosaur, and make them a little longer than the dinosaur version. To help you get the idea, take a second uh, to do a little dance as if you were a zombie, and take note of the posture of your arms and hands. If you were doing the classic zombie dance, your upper arms will be hanging down, your elbows will be bent so that your forearms are coming up and forward from your body, and your wrists should be limp with your hands dangling down and your fingers splayed. That should give you a pretty reasonable idea of the position of the Flatwoods monster's upper limbs. For the lower half, imagine a long skirt or kilt that starts narrow at the waist and then flares out to about shoulder length at the bottom. No legs or feet are visible. Finally, go back up to the round head. Behind that head, imagine the monster had been wearing a loose hoodie, and a sudden gust of wind had caught the hood and caused it to blow back off of the head, and then remain suspended behind the head like a large halo. That is what the Flatwoods monster looked like, according to the seven eyewitnesses who, in our story, are currently screaming and running down a wooded hill on Farmer Fisher's property. When they got back to the house, Mrs. May called the authorities. The local sheriff, a man named Robert Carr, was out on a call, interestingly following up on a report of a crashed airplane. After not finding any wreckage, he returned to town to hear reports of a monster encounter, and he drove out to the Fisher farm to investigate. Carr would have arrived at the location between 60 and 90 minutes after Mrs. May and the boys had come running down the hill. But Carr noticed no spacecraft, creature, or disturbances of any kind. Even before Carr arrived, and about 30 minutes after the group's encounter with the Flatwoods monster, two local teenagers named Junior Edwards and Joey Martin had also heard about the ruckus, which was the official term for a noisy incident in 1950s America, I believe, and had checked out the hill for themselves, but had also found nothing out of the ordinary. At about the same time, after hearing of the excitement, an editor from the Braxton Democrat newspaper named A. Lee Stewart Jr. went out to the May's house and convinced Gene Lemon to take him back up the hill. He also encountered nothing out of the ordinary, although when he sniffed the grass in the area, he said it did give off an odd odor. An hour after the incident, a local appliance dealer named Max Lockhart drove his pickup truck to the area to look around, like Edwards, Martin, and Stewart, Lockhart saw no evidence of anything unusual or out of place. Once he arrived, Sheriff Carr interviewed Mrs. May and the boys, some of whom were still trembling and coughing. All of them seemed sincere in their terror. 
Though no hard evidence was found, the story made the newspapers. Here's the copy from the story that caught Gray Barker's attention from his local newspaper. Headline, people say Braxton monster product of mass hysteria. Seven Braxton County residents vowed today that a Frankenstein monster with body odor drove them from a hilltop near here, but police figured the smelly boogeyman was the product of mass hysteria. The thing, described by witnesses as half-man, half-dragon, had not been reported seen since Friday night, but residents of the area said a foul odor still clung to the hilltop yesterday. All of this started when Mrs. Kathleen May of Flatwood said she and six boys, one a 17-year-old National Guardsman, climbed a hill to investigate her two small sons' report that a flying saucer landed there. She said that they found a fire-breathing monster, ten feet tall with a bright green body and a blood-red face that waddled towards them with a bouncing, floating motion and sent them scurrying down the hillside. She said the monster exuded an overpowering odor like metal that so sickened them that they vomited for hours afterwards. It looked worse than Frankenstein, said Mrs. May. It couldn't have been human. There is a lot in this report that I find interesting. Most notable to me is that this is an early enough encounter in the history of aliens and UFOs that the language and tropes that we now find so frequently, little green or gray men, silvery jumpsuits, strange instruments and equipment, don't yet exist. And Mrs. May is forced to refer to non-alien comparisons such as dragons and Frankenstein's monster. These are still pop culture references, of course, but not pop culture alien references. Those movies that I mentioned earlier that had already shown up in theaters by 1952 tended to have aliens that looked and sounded exactly like human beings. This is likely in part due to a kind of human arrogance. We assume that any advanced intelligent species must resemble us, since we're so darn advanced and intelligent. But there was also a practical matter that limited early 1950s movie aliens. Special effects were still fairly rudimentary, and anything other than a person in a suit would have been almost impossible to create back then. The result of this was that, at this point in history, the zeitgeist didn't yet have a concept of what an alien should look like. The large eyes that Mrs. May mentioned would end up being a common feature in aliens eventually, but we have the habit of seeing eyes everywhere we look. All it takes is for two reasonably circular shapes to be near each other for us to be able to see eyes in them. This eye fixation makes sense when you consider how social humans have always been, and how much information you can receive from looking into another being's eyes. By the time Gray Barker arrived in Braxton, it was a week later, and Kathleen May, Jean Lemon, and A. Lee Stewart had all gone to New York City to appear on a TV program called We the People to talk about the incident. While waiting for Kathleen May to return, Barker interviewed Neil Nunley, who was the 14-year-old who had been in the original group who had encountered the Flatwoods monster. Nunley's story was similar to the one that I already recounted. They saw an object crash into the hill. When they walked up the hill, there was a red pulsing light. Then Lemon shined his flashlight on something that had glowing eyes. The creature then glided towards them, and they all ran back down the hill in a panic. Nunley said that they only saw the thing for a second or two before Gene Lemon dropped the flashlight. Gray Barker also came across witnesses that claimed that there had been some physical evidence left behind. Tracks where the grass had been flattened down in two parallel tracks, and a strange, thick, oily goo that was left on the ground. Now that we have the setup, let's look at some of the possible explanations for this incident, and subject them to a little critical thinking. Explanation 1. It's a hoax. The seven eyewitnesses were lying about the entire affair. Now, certainly, this seems like it might be the most likely explanation at first. 
The fact that the many witnesses who showed up only 30 minutes later saw nothing out of the ordinary adds support to this hypothesis, as does the relative scarcity of physical evidence. By appearing on a national television show only a week later, Kathleen May demonstrated that she was not shy about getting publicity for this story. However, there are some reasons that I don't believe this hypothesis is the most likely one. The first one is important, and it's timing. There is plenty of evidence that there was some sort of aerial event over the skies of West Virginia that night. Kathleen May would have had only a few minutes between when the fireball shot across the sky to come up with a plan to communicate that plan to six other people, and then to get out to Fisher's farm. It seems unlikely that she would have had a contingency UFO hoax plane in her pocket just waiting for an unidentified object to crash nearby in order to launch into action. In addition, children are unpredictable and unreliable, which means that they are not necessarily very good accomplices when you are trying to perpetuate a hoax. For one famous and dramatic example, look at what happened with the Balloon Boy hoax of 2009. A family called the police claiming that their six-year-old son had accidentally climbed into a hot air balloon and was floating across Colorado. The balloon eventually came back to Earth, and the family reported to their immense relief that their son had actually been hiding in the attic the whole time. However, when the family went on television to tell their exciting story, the announcer asked their son why he had been hiding. The son looked at his parents, then said, You guys said that, um, we did this for the show. It turned out that the boys' parents were angling to get themselves a reality show based on their exciting exploits. In two later interviews, when the son was asked what he meant by, we did this for the show, he vomited on live television. And that is the kind of accomplice you get when you bring a kid into a hoax. In addition, by all accounts, Kathleen May and the six boys were genuinely terrified immediately after their encounter. Of course, it's possible that all seven of them were excellent actors, but that isn't likely. So we move to explanation two. It was a piece of new technology that crash-landed. Now this is actually the explanation that Kathleen May herself would eventually subscribe to, arguing in the mid-1960s that it, quote, wasn't a monster, end quote, and that it was, quote, a secret plane the government was working on, end quote. As we have discussed in previous episodes, particularly the episodes on uh, the Mantel encounter, Area 51, Dolce Base, the Kecksburg incident, uh, there have been many occasions in which secret technology is the most likely explanation for a UFO sighting. However, for this situation, it doesn't seem to be a particularly good fit. The description of the monster doesn't resemble any kind of experimental 1950s technology that we have come across in our studies. And if it had been, in fact, the crash of a secret plane, surely it would have left behind more physical evidence than a few track marks in the grass and a bit of oil. Particularly since other witnesses were on the scene relatively quickly, it seems reasonable to assert that if it had been a piece of malfunctioning tech, the event would have lasted longer than a few minutes. In addition, there is no evidence, unlike in the Kecksburg incident, that there was any kind of Air Force or U.S. government involvement with the site in the days after the encounter. While author Donald Kehoe argued that officers from Project Blue Book were sent to Braxton to quiet things down, Neither Captain Edward Ruppelt nor Dr. Alan Hynek, who were the two principal Blue Book investigators in 1952, even mentioned the incident when they wrote books about their time in Project Blue Book. One could argue that this was because it was so top secret that they were either in on the cover-up or had their silence bought, but there is no evidence that Ruppelt or Hynek were participating in such a cover-up, 
unlike what happened with the officers who replaced Ruppelt after 1953, after which Project Blue Book ceased to be an investigation into the UFO phenomenon and simply became a PR exercise in information management for the U.S. Air Force. Hynek in particular became a critic of the way the American government handled UFO sightings and would have had no reason to participate in covering something up like this for three decades. Explanation three, and my favorite explanation, it was an alien. This hypothesis is more difficult to discount, but that's due to the fact that it isn't really a falsifiable claim. Since we don't know anything for certain about aliens, it's difficult to examine this event and compare it to what we know to determine whether this is an example of an alien encounter or not. However, unfortunately, there is no evidence that supports the alien hypothesis in this case. Since the burden of proof is on the person making the claim, it's unnecessary to come up with counterclaims when no supported claims have been made to back up this hypothesis. So it's more charitable to consider this particular alien hypothesis as speculation rather than a supported argument. So let's move to explanation four, that there are natural or human-made reasons for everything that occurred that evening. Starting with the object in the sky, it is entirely possible that it was a meteor. Earth gets hit by about 17 meteors a day, and that doesn't even include the countless meteors that burn out in the atmosphere as shooting stars. Depending on the size of the rock and the angle it hits the Earth's atmosphere, it's not unusual for a meteor to streak across several hundred miles before crashing to the ground. The fog that the group reported could simply have been fog, which is extremely common at that time of day, at that time of year, in that part of America. The red pulsing light that the group reported could have been caused by a nearby plane beacon tower. There were three of them within eyesight of the hill, and they each had pulsing red lights on them that could have been refracted by the fog to make the area seem otherworldly. The tracks on the ground were found the next day at 7am by A. Lee Stewart, as were the oily deposits. But both could easily have been caused by Max Lockhart's 1942 Chevy pickup when he drove up to the area to see what was going on. But what about the monster itself? In the description, the two characteristics that were the clearest to all of the witnesses were the glowing eyes and the round head, which gives us something to go on when we're trying to identify this being. As do the bony claws that Kathleen May saw, the hissing noise the monster made, and the gliding motion when it came at the group. According to researcher Joe Nickel, who went to the area in 2000 and interviewed some of the people who had been involved at the time, what the group saw was actually a barn owl in a tree. The claw-like arms were actually the owl's talons gripping a tree branch. It wasn't 10 feet high, it was simply sitting in a tree 8 feet up in the air. The owl's eyes would have reflected the light from the flashlight, and as it took to the air it would have looked, in the split second that the group saw it before Gene Lemon dropped the flashlight, as if the creature was gliding towards them. In addition, the barn owl makes a hissing noise very similar to the one that the monster made as described by the group. It would have been completely understandable, particularly in 1952 with UFO and alien stories all the rage, that the group could have legitimately and honestly mistaken an owl in a tree for some kind of terrifying monster. This hypothesis does explain the lack of official military or government interest in the encounter, the genuine terror that appeared to be felt by the original seven witnesses, the specific appearance of the monster itself, and the lack of evidence found by people who showed up 30 minutes later. The area in which this occurred is Barn Owl territory, so it certainly wouldn't be unusual to come across one at that time of the evening. Well, this is the hypothesis that right now I think is probably the most likely. I have to say, 
I am disappointed that for the second time while investigating an odd setting in West Virginia, I've landed on Owl again. Ray Barker, on the other hand, wasn't disappointed at all. He wrote an article for Fate magazine on the Flatwoods Monster, featured a story on the Flatwoods Monster in his own brand new UFO magazine, The Saucerian, and dedicated the first few chapters of his book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, to the incident. And it wouldn't be the last strange creature Barker would look into. As in years later, he wrote of the Houston Batman, Little Men from Mars, the Green Monster of Plum Creek, Flying Jellyfish, the Hong Kong Beast, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins, and the Loveland Frog, amongst others. And in doing so, Barker shifted the zeitgeist by creating a kind of grammar to talk about monsters, UFO, and aliens. It was Barker who coined the phrase men in black to describe the shadowy government figures that always seem to be on the periphery of extraterrestrial events, and his own writings and recordings and the authors he published helped form the mythos of this new and growing field of study. Despite the possibility, that we'll discuss in a future episode, that Graham Barker might not have believed a word of any of it. So that's the Flatwoods Monster. Uh, Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. We also appreciate hearing from you, so send us a message at podcast at theuncoverup.com or checking out our Instagram at theuncoverup. Or check out Elena's TikTok at ampapaya. That's A-M-P-A-P-A-Y-A, if that's more your scene. We have a few new episodes that we're currently working on, including one on the Great Seattle Windshield Epidemic. And next month, I'll be investigating a bizarre UFO encounter from the 1960s that caused a high-speed chase and ruined a man's life. To be honest, at this point in my research, I have no idea what it was. But this one definitely was not an owl.